Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding the passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you're ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are disrupting dentistry. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Disrupting Dentistry. Uh, my name is Tabitha. If you haven't listened to one of our other episodes, I'm a dental hygienist from Australia. And my name is Melissa, oh. and I am a dental hygienist from America. Thank you so much. Disruptors for joining us. And if it's your first time listening, thanks for being here. We hope you like it. So we've gotten some incredible feedback over the past two weeks from our first episode launching. Um, Tabitha and I are just blown away. So we wanted to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, we are just so excited that that you guys are connecting with us and you know you're having those me too moments that tabitha and i have we're doing this for you guys too you know you know that you're not alone because we, we deal with a lot of a lot of crap <laughs> and we wanted to let you know that you know you're you're definitely not alone in your operatory we're here to just let you know that anything that we could do to make us better together we're all about that yeah it's been really heartwarming we um share the messages with each other when we get them to each of our inboxes personally and we've both been a little bit teary over how nice some of the the messages have been and and they're just the people not feeling alone has really been the running theme of people saying i just it made me feel good to not feel so alone in feeling nervous about this or not feeling confident when i first graduated so that we kind of felt like straight away wow we've achieved it all <laughs> so yeah. that's really really good so happy because it's just really cool to be able to have the ability to reach people and just like in the operatory where we could change people's lives in a really positive way and if we could do that for our colleagues not feeling alone is so essential to help you drive and push through it and and know hey you know what if i could do it and tabitha could do it there's no reason why you can't do it too you know we're all we're all the same boat we're all dental hygienists <laughs> So we can, it's, we can figure it out. So this week, we've got a topic that everyone's probably been expecting from us is dental implants. The way that um, Melissa and I actually met and a way that our career has really progressed because of dental implants and something that we're both really passionate about. So we're going to share some of that knowledge with you today because it's something that I think everyone's expecting from us. And so we're going to start with that, something that we're really passionate about. So Melissa, how about you tell the listeners why and how you ended up so passionate about implant dentistry? So my journey into implant dentistry uh, was definitely not a slow one. It was kind of just, boom, here you are. I got into perioprosto, started treating these advanced cases and just had zero knowledge that they even existed, let alone how to properly care for them. So I just felt very compelled to expand my knowledge because I just it's not fair that these patients go through the financial impact, the emotional impact, and, and do take all the steps and do everything we've asked of them and, and be compliant with the treatment we're recommending and make this enormous financial investment. And I don't have the right tools or knowledge to support these cases. So it, it definitely came from a place where I felt like I wasn't serving this patient population properly. And I needed to do my due diligence to, to figure this out if, if perioprost was my new home. 
So um, that's really, it, it came from a place where I don't like feeling like I'm not doing the best I can for my patients. And I needed to educate myself. And I started small. I started just within the practice, asking the doctors tons of questions, you know, reading some of the, the textbooks that they had on hand in the office. And then I started venturing out, you know, within my own profession. But that's where I, I really hit a roadblock because there really wasn't a lot of information within my own profession on how to care for these types of patients. What I did find, I would learn about and I would go back into the operatory and start to apply it. And a lot of it wasn't working and it wasn't practical in practice. And I would get some negative feedback from patients. I would see some things that were negative and I felt horrible because they were you know, having a negative result and nitrogenic result based on a recommendation that I had made. So it was a lot of mistake making to, to figure things out. And then I got to the point where I realized that, you know what, like, I think I might have more experience in treating these patients than maybe what's even out there for us to learn from. Then being able to connect with other like-minded professionals, um, like Siobhan and, and yourself, Tabitha and Carmen Lanaway that are all working with this specialized patient population, Cole Fortune, Miranda Beeson, feeling the same way and kind of putting our heads together and saying, Hey, you know what? I do this and this works. And, oh, I use this instrument and this works. And you know, this is helping me out with my patients or, or I, you know, just, just sharing trade secrets. And um, that's kind of how the implant care practitioner was born and dental implants uncovered was born was because we just collectively decided that we need to share this information that we've learned from our experiences. And sometimes experience in certain niches of dentistry is going to be more helpful than just following some of the, the theoretical studies and a lot of collaborative efforts. So Tabitha, how about you? Tell us about your journey into implant dentistry. We talked about a little bit in the first episode how I didn't feel prepared for implants at all when I graduated. I was like you, what I was doing, I felt wasn't the care I wanted to provide. It really wasn't the quality I wanted to give. And that made me really upset and it made me stressed and, and just feeling really inadequate. And I was like, well, I have to do something about it. So I started hanging out with the local periodontist on my days off, just like walking around behind him, watching what he was doing. And because like you, I was looking for courses and I couldn't find them. And at this point, now there's implant maintenance courses around, but at that point, there wasn't anything definitely aimed at the dental hygienist really. And there wasn't even much there for dentists. What I found with implant dentistry is, you know, the history of implants is long. It's from the turn of time we've been doing stuff. You know, we can see stuff in ancient ruins from Aztecs when they're putting jade in mouth as implants. And, you know, obviously in the forties and the sixties, implant dentistry really took off. But placing it in the surgical was where all the research was happening and the failure and the infections was an afterthought and how to deal with it. So the maintenance side of preventing, because what I found was all the courses out there were what to do when it was diseased and it was mainly surgically focused, but not how to not get disease. And so I, and it's really just how the evolution of dentistry in general has worked. You know, the first dentistry was just about treating disease and preventative dentistry is a later aspect of dentistry. And it's happened the same way with implants. We've looked at the preventative last. That's such yeah. a great point that you put out that, you know, we, we kind of, instead of reverse engineering this, we, we just followed the same thing that we did historically with teeth. Yeah, and we have. I had traveled overseas and I did different things to try and find this knowledge. So it's been a long journey. And I've said it before, and I really do have a bit of a love-hate relationship with implants. I love what they bring for a patient in confidence, 
in speech and the ability to chew, um, you know, the aesthetics, all of those things. You know, my worst nightmare is waking up and having a denture in my mouth. So I, I would be a person that if I had an accident and lost teeth, I'd want an implant. But I also dislike them because it upsets me how many are placed without the patient realising it's not better than a tooth. It upsets me that dentists place them without knowing themselves how to even teach the patient the home care or what should happen. And it upsets me when I see huge investment failing. So I have this love-hate love because I see massive positives, but I see negatives and the other thing that really worries me and you and I have had discussions about this outside of the podcast as well and I, I discuss it all the time with people because I don't have the answers but I think it's something we should talk about is what do we do at end life stage what what are we doing for these patients in aged care facilities when they're losing their manual dexterity when they don't have the ability to look after themselves and they've got complex all on four zygomatic implants that when they have an infection in a zygomatic implant it's going to be serious and are you then going to go into surgery and a ga with a 90 year old frail person like i think again we're thinking now, 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 and we're not thinking long-term future. I think a lot of implant dentistry, we're like 18-year-olds that just want to get out there and, ah, like I've got my freedom. But we're yeah. not thinking about, oh, what, what are the consequences of all of this? So I'm not saying don't place implants. There's definitely a place for them. I would want one if I was in an accident and lots of the patients at Restoring it's a really good point in their life to do that. But I still think we've got to have a long-term plan that we're not thinking about at the moment. So I agree with you there. And, and then we also have to have that mindset shift that implants are uh, great to restore missing. It's not the go-to though, when we can still save teeth. Yeah. And, and that should be the first response is we should do everything we can to save the tooth or teeth. Um, try to make sure that we are managing periodontal disease. We should not be putting implants in an active periodontal disease mouth. That's just yes. setting yourself up for failure. You send that memo out to everyone. They don't go into oh. sickness. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's so obvious, but yet it happens over and over again. I think we've both said this. Implants replace missing teeth. They don't replace teeth. Throw everything at a tooth first. It's always better than an implant. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally agreed. So if there's one takeaway from this episode is save the teeth. Please save the teeth. Hashtag save the teeth. <laughs> but it, it's so true. And I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in, wow, look at this solution that we have. Look at this solution that we have instead of going, wow, this this is way better. Because if you had to pick between getting half your leg amputated and a really like fantastic graphite like replacement, replacement leg, you're still going to pick your leg, aren't you? <laughs> no matter how good the technology has come over for having a body part replaced, that a tooth is a body part that we're replacing it's the same thing pick your tooth <laughs> absolutely we should stop saying remove your tooth lose your tooth extract your tooth and start saying amputate your tooth yeah because maybe people would understand better that this is a body part and 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 maybe people would be more invested in caring for that body part if we started referring to it as a tooth amputation rather than an extraction yeah i'd be mortified like what? Let's start a movement here and let's start using that free. Right? Right? I oh, how are you today? I oh I'm good. I just had my tooth amputated. Wait, what? What just happened? 
<laughs> you know, like, I think it's just, it's perspective. It's totally perspective. And it's how we communicate with our patients as well. And, yeah. and that's a big issue that I see in implant dentistry is poor communication and a lack of communication and a lack of patient education. Yeah. And I think one of the issues is, is because we started dentistry, like I said before, with extractions, extension for prevention, you know, all of these methods that we at the time were state of the art. And as we've learned more, we're learning preventative dentistry and minimally invasive dentistry is the way to go. But we set up years and years of just extract it that even though if you're not born in that era, you still have the hangover from that left. And we're still trying to get patients to learn that that actually, no, we shouldn't just extract it. Because when I was in general practice, you would see those patients would come in and go, oh, should we just pull it out then? You know, and not have that attachment or realise that we actually have a set of teeth for a reason and losing them comes with other complications. And, and it is better to keep as many teeth as you can. And you don't want to end yeah. up at that end stage where you do need all on four dentistry because I think most dental clinicians don't even realise that when you get an all on four, you really should be telling your patients, if we get 15 years out of this, woohoo! Like, because we know they don't last lifetimes. They need replacing, things go wrong. And they need maintenance and screw changes and appliance repairing. And it's not just put it in and it's done. There's a lot going on there. And sometimes I wonder if patients realise they could be up for this surgery and all this money again in 15 years, possibly. Now, a lot of them last longer than that. But you can't give them the best case scenario. We have to tell them what the average is. Yeah, we got to underpromise and overdeliver when it comes to this. We're not always communicating that what you were just saying with maintenance, like screws need to be replaced, um, locators need to be replaced, things, things like that. And I would say to my patients too, like I, I need you to understand that this appliance or this prosthetic is kind of like tires on a car, oil change on your car. There's periodic maintenance that's going to need to be done. I know you made a big investment, but there's going to be expenses subsequent down the road in order to maintain this prosthetic and, and maintain your investment that you made. So that's also something that I don't think is communicated very well when a patient is first accepting treatment, like at all on X case. It's a tough situation for them because then they're kind of blindsided later a few years down the road. And if they're making this big investment and some people are mortgaging their homes and are using a home equity line of credit and, and making a monthly payment on this, and then all of a sudden they're not done paying that. And now they have to have this big expense of the maintenance phase a few years in. And they're not they're not aware that that's coming that's that's hard because they didn't prepare for that you know so it's it's we have a long way to go in our communication with with implant um full arch hybrid cases for sure i think it kind of leads us into our our title for today which we're a topic that are going to cover the urban legends of implant maintenance there's so many things that get floated around and they just become urban legends and 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 the number one is don't probe a dental implant and you and I hear this all the time. And I was at a lecture recently where they said, no one says that anymore, do you? And I laughed hysterically and I was like, yeah. I've been on a podium presenting and a dentist has stood up and yelled at me while I'm on the podium and said, you can't probe an implant, you'll give it peri-implantitis. And I was like, oh God, he's serious. <laughs> and that was actually what he thought. <laughs> Myth number one busted. You will not give an implant, peri-implant TARDIS by probing it. Probing is recommended. All the scientific literature supports it. Now, you need to understand the anatomical differences between an, each individual implant 
and the teeth so that you can probe it correctly. And the tissues are more fragile. You do have to be careful that you're not going to cause damage, but you're not going to cause periimplantitis. Now, it's important that you do it. They don't have a range of healthy probing depths like teeth. We know that, but you need to know change. And you can't find change on a 2D periapical x-ray because you don't know what's happening on the lingual or the buccal. And I've got an x-ray when I present all the time that doesn't look too bad. And I'm like, there's a nine millimeter pocket on the buckle of this implant that you would never know about on any type of x-ray unless you took a CBCT. And even then, you can sometimes not get a great view of the implant on the CBCT anyways. You have to do that probing depth to find those changes because if you're not, you're not Superman, you can't see through the tissues, you are going to actually not find out there's a problem until it's quite severe. You need to find out at the mucositis stage so that we can prevent periimplantitis because you can't get periimplantitis without getting mucositis first. We know that. So thus the main prevention protocol for implantitis is the treatment of mucositis. And if you don't probe your implants, you won't know until it's too late. Absolutely. And, and implant disease is so much more aggressive than periodontal disease. Back to, you know, knowing the anatomy, knowing how there is no PDL on an implant, so there's no protective fibers covering and protecting the bone. So as soon as an infection starts, it goes boom, right down to the bone. And that's why it's so aggressive and it can be so rapid. Um, so it's another issue to really... Um, present individualized care to your patients before we put implants in we have to let them know that you know you might have been coming every six months to see me every four months every three um, but based on this situation i'm going to need to see you on a more frequent uh, recare protocol and, and i had some patients i was seeing every two months because that's what their their implants and, and their ability to maintain them themselves really required in order for us to have success yeah. you know we kind of have to throw throw our mindset with teeth to the wind because it's not really applicable when it comes to implants. We have to really um, just be open, do our due diligence to learn more about this so that we can make recommendations that are gonna be beneficial to these patients and support their care. That really good points, Melissa, because I think that takes us to myth two, an implant is just like a tooth. <laughs> We're talking about that and you're explaining that really well with that, like doesn't yeah. have EDL. It doesn't have that blood supply. What do you think are the main differences between the implant and the teeth to, to show that it's not like the tree? Well, we definitely, like I mentioned, there's no PDL. So we don't have those Sharpie fibers that are attaching and pulling the tissue into the tooth. That It's just like scar tissue. It's just really laying there. Less vascular, less resilient than, mm. than natural tissue with a tissue around natural teeth. Um... The design, a lot of times, the, the restorative design can be impactful to how biofilm retentive it will be. So that's that's an issue as well. Um, bone topography is totally different, especially if we are placing, you know, if it's an implant being restored for a molar that was multi-rooted and now we have this single cylindrical screw replacing multi-rooted teeth and the anatomy is just completely different. So the way the bone adapts is different. The interdental spaces will then be different as well. Um, what else can happen? I think they're really good points and that's what you really, especially when you're talking about emergence profiles, like you were mentioning, they can be so weird and wonderful on implants is a, is a nice yeah. way to put it. And sometimes the dentist doesn't have much yeah. um, <laughs> choice in the way that he designs because the space is awkward you know um the way the bone is being lost and the way they have to restore it, it just actually makes it hard to get a good emergence profile and then other times there's poor design choices 
Um, but they can make probing, cleaning, plaque retention, like you mentioned, really, really difficult. And I think when you go back before as well, what you mentioned as well as is that people really understanding that the immune response of an implant, the tissue around an implant to a tooth, isn't the same. And it, it is more exaggerated. Disease will progress a lot faster. We, can, we know that it progresses nonlinear. I've seen implants lost, and you probably have as well, in a really quick time period. Where, and that's why you do have to really bunch those appointments up, see them a lot more um, often, really make a big deal out of bleeding on probing on an implant. Like bleeding at any time, like you and I both, it's our pet hate. Just a little bit of bleeding, that's... You know, that makes my skin crawl when you hear something, someone say that because I'm like, it's not just a little bit of bleeding. There's no such thing as a little bit of bleeding, you know. And you explain, we all explain to our patients like this. Um, you know, if you brushed your hair and your scalp started bleeding, you'd be a little worried. <laughs> like, or you rubbed your eye and it started bleeding. Why do we not worry about the mouth? And if we don't put that concern out there. So when I actually say, when I say, I say there's bleeding, which means there's inflammation and infection here. So now it may be localized or generalized. So you can say, I can see localized inflammation and infection here or generalized, but I never call it just a little bit. It is, uh, there's a localized bleeding and infection, but localized bleeding, you know, two sites of bleeding around my implant is serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's not a little bit of bleeding. Right. And and that's the thing is that sometimes we as the the, uh, preventative clinician get frustrated because we might bring that to our dentist's attention and there's no action drawn after that. So it puts us into this awkward space and it's challenging for us because we're trying to elevate the care. We're trying to do the best for our patient. But because the, you know, dentistry as a whole, I feel is so focused on the restorative and the surgical aspect that as you were saying, that maintenance component, we're striving for it. We want more of it because that's our wheelhouse, but that's not really their wheelhouse. And that's why I feel like there's a lot of, of miscommunication between like, do we probe? Don't we probe? Can we use this instrument? Can we use that one? Is this safe? Is that not safe? And, and I think that that's why there's a lack of support on the maintenance end too for dentists to purchase the proper equipment to help us maintain these cases. It's just a base, basic from a lack of knowledge. And I don't, I'm not saying this in a negative way. If I had to figure out how to surgically put implants in and restore them, that would be my driving focus too. That would be all that I was focusing on because I took my portion of that in maintenance very seriously and I put a lot of effort and focus on that. And, And I think that we, as these two professions working together so closely, have to really start utilizing each other for their niche and their knowledge and depending on each other more. We said it in our last episode uh, or in our first episode, we are the specialists when it comes to dental hygiene. So let us do it. Let us have that role. Let us take that. I think that you would have a lot more clinicians across the board in dentistry. And I don't think that this is a, is a specific country or demographic thing. I just think across the globe, we would have more motivated dental hygienists taking initiative and doing better by their patients if we were given that autonomy within the practice. And I'm not even asking to have my own practice. I'm just saying within the practice. We had an ability to communicate with the dentists and say, here's the research I've done. Here's the science that supports what I would like to implement. And this is the result I foresee happening. Can we start this program? 
And basically you just need their financial support to get that equipment in the door that you need to run that program or whatever products you need to run that program. So I just wish that we had a little bit more of that, that ability to work together and utilize each other's specialties of knowledge. Well, it takes a team, doesn't it? You can't build a house with just one building. You need a plumber and you need an electrician and you need multiple people. And when you're building up this house inside the mouth and making this restorative from the implants to the, the crowns or the bridge or the dentures into the maintenance, it takes a team again. And mm -hmm. you need to work together and you, you can't master everything. You know, some people do, but I think they're the minority, to be honest. We all need to find our little niche and then work together well. And I think it also comes back to the people who are training people to place implants. Now, again, it may not be them that, that teaches this bit, but part of that program should be mandatory to teach them how to maintain them. There shouldn't be yeah. a program where you teach placement and you don't teach the aftercare because when someone comes to learn about placing them, they should learn every aspect of it. And we've talked about this before as well, and I really believe in this, that it's everybody's responsibility to learn about implants, whether you work placing them or whether you... Even if you say, oh, I don't work in a practice that's placing them, you still have patients that come in with them. They're not going away. Implant dentistry is increasing every single year globally. And I would think that there wouldn't be a practice out there that doesn't have a patient in there with an implant. So unless yeah. you're going to refer them, it's your job to find out how to maintain them. What is that? Between the office. It has to be. And I get so frustrated when I hear of these hygienists who are doing their due diligence and they're researching and they're learning and they come to that point where they see that this is the equipment and technology that I need. I understand the need behind this and I understand why I need to utilize this to safely maintain my cases. And they keep bringing it to their, their dentist and they keep getting the no over and over and over again. And they get really frustrated. And that starts a lot of discord within the practice. And then you know, that's how you have really great clinicians leave a practice and try to find another one that's going to allow them to do their work the way that they want to do it, because it is our license. And it's sometimes really hard for us to find that that practice and that dentist that you guys are on the same page and you're calibrated and you have a similar mission and you could really work together in a nice, cohesive way. It's definitely a struggle for us in, in our profession. And it comes back to, we've said this in the multiple episodes that we've recorded now, it comes back to you interviewing that practice and making sure your morals and your ethics align because you'll never be happy at a practice where you are not going to be, be able to work in a way that you find ethical and it doesn't align. So it is really important. I've been in those practices where it isn't aligned and I can promise you I was very unhappy and, and I needed to change because it, I'm not saying that the person I was working with was wrong. We just, we weren't aligned and right. it wasn't what I wanted for myself or my patients. And so I needed to find that alignment. And I think your patients get better care and you feel better when you go home after work each day when you have that alignment. Definitely. And, and you can even, as, as we all grow as human beings and evolve and learn more and change, you could be with someone who you were aligned with at one point and, and through the years of that relationship come out of alignment. And that's okay too. Like that's just, it's just how things roll sometimes. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person or they're a bad person. It just meant that that part of your, your relationship just changed and it was time to just go your separate ways. Yeah. Because I know that as a clinician, I've changed, I've grown, I've learned, 
my ideas have changed, what I want, what I believed in and what I learned to begin with isn't the same anymore. And just like we didn't, we don't still use the pedal drill because it was one state of the art and now we've got something better. Your ideas change with that changing technology as well. And, and for some people, they're not, they don't want to change with it. Uh, so I think some people find that really hard. I find it really, I think, thank God, because I love change. <laughs> That's what I think like you and I are so aligned with. We we are like early adapters. We When we see something and we're like, wow, this is going to make us even better at what we do. This is going to help patients. This is amazing. We're like on board where other people are like, hmm, I need to ask all these questions about this first and I really need to dig in and do a lot of research and I, I kind of sometimes look at myself I'm like oh am I too much of like a risk taker that I'm just ready to dive into feet first and like figure this out and make it work because it seems so amazing I, I don't know that's just I guess my personality I think that that's something that's different about you and I is that we're we're willing to to make these changes and explore new options because I think at the end of the day and I'm sure many hygienists feel this way as well, that our mission is centered around patient care. You know, my, my mantra is I want to leave my patients better than I found them. And I'm going to try to employ every tactic, every device, every uh, adjunct to be able to do that. Yeah, I think, and I think this will be uh, episode, another episode, but talking about how we set up our practices so that we can have the things that we need and want and how we present business plans for our business with Insider Business so that we are getting, looking at that, how we're getting what we need. And, and that's a really big discussion of its own, but it, it is important that we understand the business of the, that's going on and, and how to work with that and, and combine that healthcare and business together because they are both aspects of us working in private practice. Yeah. It's just the beast that we're in and, and what we have to deal with uh, but it's important you understand it so that you can get your department, because I always call it a department, we're a department with inside that practice, you know, we're the preventative care department. Even if there's just one of me at that practice, I'm still in the preventative care department. And so <laughs> um, we need that department to have the machinery and the things that we need so that that department can run well. You know, I think sometimes it's expected that hygienists will just work in the back room like we're Harry Potter underneath the stairs with the leftover instruments. Um, <laughs> like, has anyone out there felt like that? But, um, you know, I remember I went for an interview. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was really bad. I said to them, I, how about I treat a patient for you? And they're like, oh, okay. I said, so I'll, I'll come in and on their day off, I said, bring in your worst patient. Bring in, your, bring in a nervous one or a difficult one. And I'm, I'm going to treat them and then you can speak to the patient about the feedback. And, and they were like, oh, okay, yep, excellent. So I'm setting up for the patient and, and they bring in a perio patient for me. And I said, okay, yep, fine. And so I'm looking for things. And then I, I went out to the dentist and I said, um, I can't find the instruments because I need some you know, some instruments here because they didn't have airflow there. And so I was looking for an ultrasonic tip and some hand instruments. And she said, they're in the top drawer. And I said, I went to the top drawer and there was just one sickle and one 11, 12. And she goes, yep, they're the hand instruments. Ooh. I said, for the, for the whole practice, like, what, what? <laughs> it's like, what, what, what? And um, she said, yes. I feel that the um, hygienists need to prove their worth before I invest in them. 
And I went, okay, I this is not for me. <laughs> and I was out of there. So I I recommend doing a, a working interview because you find out a lot of things. You get to look through drawers. You get to look at things. You know, you get to actually have a look inside, things that you don't get to see until maybe your first day. Now, if I had just done the interview with her and just gone back talking because she could talk the talk. She was really nice. And in her room, she had every gadget that could exist on the face of the earth. But in the hygiene room, and I was just like, how can anyone prove their worth with nothing, without to not be able to, I can't do good work. I, I think that I am a good clinician and I can't provide anything in there with that. So, you know, I know those cases out there exist and you need to avoid practices like that to begin with. But two, we, we need stuff to be able to do our job properly. We're not magicians. <laughs> and that's what I think she right. wanted from me. <laughs> right, right. It's like sending a, a soldier into war with, with no, no gun, no protection. Just go out and fight. Go fight and win. Win this war. But we're not going to give you anything to use to protect yourself or, or be proactive about trying to win this war. Yeah. So it's 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 a tough spot we're in. We have to use our voices. We have to protect our license, and we have to speak up for what we've learned. It's our education, and you know, so many hygienists know how difficult hygiene school is. We got to protect that, right? Because that's nobody did that for us. We did that. So we definitely have to protect our license and our livelihood for sure. So we've kind of we've we've flowed into a few tips here. So we we covered dough probe. Um, we discussed the differences between natural teeth and implants. So we've established that an implant is not like a tooth. And we've also, in that conversation, had the realization that, you know, a lot of times people are told your implant is like your bionic now, and, and that is not the case. It cannot decay, but it is very susceptible, as Tabitha said, to disease talking about mucositis and periimplantitis. On the topic of of having technology and instruments, what's the, the next urban legend about treating our implant patients and doing our maintenance protocols? I think that people think that they can treat it like a tooth and, you know, I can just scale it with a normal scaler or I'll use a plastic scaler. I don't know if anyone's tried to use a plastic scaler, but I have, and it's horrible. <laughs> How do I adapt this? It's yeah. so thick. And if we have healthy peri-implant tissue, it's nice and tight and firm. And yeah. now I'm going to try to shove this giant plastic instrument in this peri-implant space. And, but you don't want me to probe it, but you're going to give me this yeah. giant fat plastic instrument to try to decontaminate it with. Which is so Does funny, isn't it? Sense? Yeah, I think that you have to, you have to um, debride them differently. And that's what's really important. Now, Melissa and I are obviously huge airflow advocates because we both train and work with it. We've independently worked with it before becoming involved with it. Um, so, you know, for biofilm management, for calculus management, it's not the same as on teeth. You need to do it differently. And so that's really important. And then the home maintenance is different as well. I'm actually not a huge fan of floss in general mm -hmm. because I think it's very... Um, technique sensitive and I think most people can't do it properly so I'm a huge fan of interdental brushes and stuff like that but I'm even I'm actually anti it for implants I hate the, the super floss 360 around implants and I really want people to stop telling people to do it so um yeah stop hashtag we have this this hashtag we use in our dental implants uncovered group it's hashtag stop the floss yeah 
and, and around implants most definitely yes yeah so it's not we're not saying not advocating for patients to floss because as i agree with tabitha it is technique sensitive i think that flossing is a great um a, a great practice for healthy patients to maintain their health i don't necessarily feel that it is a effective or an essential way to maintain a perial maintenance case and it's definitely not an effective or essential way to maintain an implant case in my opinion and, and going back to um you know when i spoke earlier about the topography of bone around an implant and if you take a pa of an implant especially a molar one and you put that up on your screen for your patient and i used to use this as an educational tool for my patients all the time and i would show them the interdental spaces and show them how large they were, especially if you had natural teeth right next, you could see the difference in the size. And then I would tell them, so you're gonna take a piece of string and put it in there. Do you think it's gonna do a good job removing bacteria, this skinny little piece of string in that enormous space? And they would flat out tell me no. I said, you're right. So here's what we're gonna use instead. And on the flip side of that, I love when my patients say, I don't floss and I'm not going to. And I'm like, guess what? I don't want you to either. And they look at me really, they're like, what? You don't want me to floss? I was like, no, I want you to use this instead. I said, honestly, we have different ways to remove bacteria between the teeth. And it doesn't mean not everybody can benefit from flossing. There's not a one size fits all when it comes to home care. And there's especially not a one size fits all when it comes to implant patient home care. We really need to individualize that. And we need to make ourselves aware of all the different products that are out there because no two hybrid cases are the same. No two implant cases are the same. And what may work for one may not work for another. So we, we really need to know all of the availabilities to our patients and try to make it easy and practical for them to do because if it's not practical and it doesn't fit into their life they're not going to do it and then they're going to come back and be upset when we tell them at a subsequent appointment that you have disease around your room yeah and when people are using the 360 floss they're often quite aggressive like the patients when they're doing that you know they've got like two arms into it you can't see me on the screen but i'm like aggressively flossing and we see those cuts in the gingiva and those clefts happen and we start seeing damage around that implant mucosa from the 360 floss. Now this is seen in literature, but I've seen it in my physical practice and I'm sure you've seen it as well, Melissa. I have the most beautiful image of my patient who has a tail coming out of their gingiva around their implant because I told them to 360 floss and it was stuck there and living there for a while. And <laughs> I felt so terrible that I told them to do that. And that was the result of my instructions. And that was the last day I ever recommended 360 flossing to anyone. So what, you made such a great point about, again, we need to understand what we're saying here. We're being a bit of hypocrites. We don't want the hygienist to probe them, but we're content to say, here's some super floss, wrap it around and be super aggressive and shoe shine it. And, and thinking that that's gonna do anything to the tissue, you know, and if they're doing that every day and I'm probing it one time at these specific intervals and we think sending them out into their world in their bathroom to do that is, is less aggressive or, or using a water pick. I love when I hear dentists all the time saying, oh, I don't want them using a water pick. That's gonna damage the tissue. Okay, well, we have to do our due diligence and teach them the right and the wrong way to do it. And we need the time in our day to be able to give them that information and education but again we're going to 360 floss it instead of using that and think that that's going to be more gentle to the tissue it just it doesn't add up in my brain 
And I hope that we can, in just in this episode, raise some awareness so that, you know, not that it it causes discord within an office, but just to to question things a little bit and say, is this really the best practice? Is this really practical? And, you know, is this really going to be beneficial long term? to support this case and support the, the health and longevity of the implant. Because we want, you know, the, the, the studies when, when implant dentistry first blew up, it was all about 99% success rate, 99% success rate. Well, we've seen a different story now. And we, I think we can achieve that success rate as long as we're doing all the right things. And we're not always doing all the things correctly. Yeah. No, we're not. And we have to make sure that we're staying part. Now, exactly. And I, one, something that I always say is what Melissa and I, or, you know, or somebody else tells you today may not be what we tell you in five years time. So don't hold it to us for the rest of our lives. But what is really important is, is that today you're up with what the latest technology is right now. It's going to change. It's going to progress. And maybe something new will come onto the market or something new research will come out. But we need to all be making sure that we're continuing to do that education. And that's why we have compulsory CPD, because we need to go out there and keep learning because it's going to keep changing. All our degree did was give us a license to learn. And now we have a license to learn. And it's our responsibility to go out there and do it. Definitely, definitely. And especially when you're creeping up onto like the 20 year mark of practicing. I I love to be able to say to the students, you guys are graduating way smarter and with more knowledge than I did 20 years ago. So you're just going to blow the doors off of us because you know so much more. We know so much more about periodontal disease and and oral systemic linking and and how virulent these periodontal pathogens are. So it's just going to keep on elevating and growing. And we have to run with that. It's our responsibility to run with that. So yeah, we need to keep learning. It's so essential. And I I love that you say that, Tabitha, because especially it rings so true in implant dentistry. And I had the pleasure of being in a lecture with uh, Dr. Rosen's lecture at the Osteology Symposium. And he said he made that point abundantly clear that this is what I'm saying today. Don't call me six years from now and said, oh, you know what? I followed that protocol you said in, in 2019 and it didn't work because it's changed. It just changed so exponentially. And, and the other part of the piece with the 360 flossing that we have to think of is that, you know, as a clinician, I don't have time in my day to go back and dig in the chart and see what kind of implant body was placed, what that fixture, uh, what kind of surface coating. So if it's a roughened surface, if it's a roughened surface and, and my patient's able to get down deep enough and actually rub that floss on that roughened surface, what do you think is happening with the floss? It's just getting, it's retaining on that surface. And if there's a foreign body sitting around the tissue, what's going to happen? So we just have to really kind of look at things a little bit objectively and not just follow recommendations. Yeah. So I would want to encourage our listeners and our disruptors, ask questions. You know, you don't have to, there's a way to ask questions without being aggressive and you know because sometimes it can come off i've had that experience with patients you know are you are you asking me a question or are you questioning me um so that's that's a tough one too so it's it's a little bit of a fine dance that you have to do when you're speaking to your doctor about these things but um it's okay to ask questions in in the sense that you're just seeking knowledge and your end game goal is to provide your patient with the best care yeah i'm a massive question asker they make a a joke at all the work meetings Tabitha, 
it's time for your questions. <laughs> I'm always like, um, ask some questions now. And I don't mean it in a mean way. I just like to understand and just want to know more. And I think it's a great thing when you can ask questions and you work somewhere where it's where you can. And like you said, though, it'll change. Things will change. So we need to keep learning, keep staying up with it because what we're saying right now, if you're listening to this in 2025, make sure you stayed up to date. Make sure that we probably, if we're still podcasting in 2025, we've done an update on this. <laughs> so this is an archive episode at that point. <laughs> um, but I just want to touch on one more thing with instruments is that there's a lot of issues here. The other part that I have, plastic scalers, if you have them in your jaw, do yourself a favor, throw them out because they're pretty much useless. Or put them on your doctor's desk and, and say, it's time it's time to cash these in. Let's, let's see what we need to do to move forward. Is there a place for titanium hand scalers? Yes. I don't use them often, but there are times if there was residual cement that I was able to access and be able to remove, I utilize that to do so. Sometimes um, adaption with calculus in certain areas, I can utilize that to remove it or, or make sure that I've gotten, if there's thread exposure, we had like a satisfactory stability implant and I needed to get something out that I just couldn't adapt with my other instruments and it wasn't removing, then yes, I'm going to pull that out of my drawer and use that. Is it my number one go-to for implant maintenance and all I utilize for that? Absolutely not. So. As Tabitha said, that she and I are both airflow proponents. When I learned about that technology, it was like my brand new day moment because it, it just answered all of these questions that I, I had. Was I doing the right thing? Is this working? This technology was like, here it is. This is what we need. And this is working. It, it, it just changed the game for me. So I think it's so essential to really do your homework. And when you, you know better, you have to do better. And when you can bring forward the science and say, hey, you know what, doc, this is technology that's out. And by the way, especially for my American counterparts, it's not new. Yeah. It's been out for a really long time and it's evolved. Those handy devices, when that first hit the market in Europe, was that was early 2000s. So a lot of us are using those devices over here in the U.S. and thinking it's new. It's not new. Your airflow prophylaxis master is new. So that's really, that's the one machine, one device, and it really treats every single patient that you have. There are very minor medical contraindications for using it. Minor, minor, small percentage. But it's going to treat 95% of your patients. And it, it just, it makes you a better clinician and you don't have to have those moments at night where you lay your head on the pillow and you wonder if you did the right thing or did a good enough job for these cases. Yeah. I know I had a, um, we were talking about it at work today actually. We, I had a patient in three months ago and they had nine millimeter pocketing and profuse bleeding on probing. And it was just a bit of a mess to be honest. And so I did the best that I could do on that day. I treated them um, with airflow. Like I did a disclosing oral hygiene instructions, did an airflow, did a perioflow, and then used my ultrasonic scalers. And um, I've been lucky I've got left and right, so I got in there really well. And I brought them back today, and I had the perio come in, 
and I'd set the patient up for, you're probably going to have to go into an, into active therapy with the periodontist again. Um, he'll do the review today and then we'll write the treatment plan. So my boss came in and he did the chart and I was recording it for him because he was doing the review. And I said to him, can, not to be rude, but can you recheck that tooth? And he goes, what? <laughs> I said, oh, the, the two six mesial, that was a nine last time. I think you might need to reprobe. Like, and he goes, yeah, I'll reprobe it. And he goes, I've reprobed it. I can't get past four. And I said, oh. no, you're going to have to check it again. <laughs> and he goes, no, it's a four. He goes, all right, tell me the next. And I said, okay. Um, and so then we, he finished the chart and we, we looked back and he looked back and he goes, um, yeah, you don't need active therapy again. Tabitha's done it. And, um, and so non-surgical therapy works. Now, I was dancing behind him while I'm doing the periodontal and I came out to him and I said, today we have had a win. But that's because I've been given really good technology in my room. I'm given what I needed. And I'm, if I need something, then I only have to go and ask for it and I have it. And I am very lucky. I really, But I actually don't want to say I'm lucky. I'm just given what I'm needed. That shouldn't be lucky. It shouldn't be lucky. I love that you say that. It shouldn't be lucky. I'm just given the standard of care that I need. And I've given it. And then you can see results. And he even turned to me and said, they're really good results today. And I said to him, yeah, I didn't actually think they'd be that good either. <laughs> Five millimeters of reduction? Yeah. Amazing result. And then you've, you've prevented this patient from having an invasive procedure and cutting open their tissue. Like, that's tremendous. Yeah, you know, we're really, really happy with it. Now, obviously, the patient has to take some credit for that because they've done the oral hygiene instructions that I've given them. They've got on board. They're doing the work. And so it was a team effort. But it was actually a team effort between myself, the patient, and the technology that I was given. Yeah. Because I actually don't think I could have got those results without being able to get really good subgingival um, nine millimeter pocket biofilm management that I was able to do because I was given the tools to do that. So I um, I know that it was a joint effort between the three of us, and I've it's such a good day when you can walk out of the appointment. You know, and the patient's at the front desk and you're dancing in your room because I'm a big nerd and I'll dance around when I have a case like that. And, I, you know, and everyone will know Tabitha's in a great mood because she's dancing into the stereo because everything went well today. But <laughs> I get that excited about it. I'm like, yes, that was a win. I've done it. So, um, you know, we non-surgical therapy works. It does. And you know what? That's the stuff that reinvigorates and reignites you it just keeps you passionate about what you do. Those, yeah. those wins are tremendous because not only did you change his, this patient's periodontal condition, but what do we think was living in that nine millimeter pocket? Those are tissue, tissue invasive bacteria that get into our body systems, travel throughout our whole bloodstream and have a systemic impact on our body. So you improve that patient's health in more way than orally. And that's that's what drives me. Like, that's what's so amazing about what we do is that we have this result in the oral cavity and then what we can't see behind the scenes that's happened throughout the whole body. Oh gosh, that just, that lights my fire. And I, I just want to keep learning more about that impact. Yeah, no, it is. It's really, really exciting. And I think that's what, um, you have to take the small wins if you're listening. So, you know, when we have a yeah. win, celebrate it, dance off your corridor at work. <laughs> 
if you're in your car right now listening, if you're at the gym right now listening, if you're in the kitchen cooking dinner listening, do a little dance. Do a little hygiene, happy dance. Because I think we should, we should, sorry, we should do that. Yeah. You know what? Disruptors, take a video of yourself doing your little happy hygiene dance and post it on our Facebook page. Post it on our Instagram. Tag us. Put it in your stories. Let's see your happy hygiene dance. <laughs> I'll get my work to record me tomorrow. <laughs> I love it. Let's really celebrate these wins because we get so excited about it. But, you know, sometimes in the office, not, not everybody gets it, you know. And so let's, let's share it with, with your, your people. Share it with your colleagues. Let us know you had an awesome win. Yeah. I think it's, you know, and it, it's good when the patient sees how happy you are because, it, you know, that makes everyone feel good. And, and it's great when you've got a patient that listens. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely going to have to do some episodes on communication. Yeah. And, um, you know, just talking about how, how we, we don't really dig too much into how we communicate and how our brains work and how we really get people to receive messaging. So I think that doing episodes on that will be able to present a lot of good tips especially for new grads, because, you know, there's just not enough hours in the hygiene curriculum to... Yeah to attack things like that, but it's so essential in, in your communication with your patients and it carries over in your life too. Like it just makes you a better communicator all around. So we'll, we'll definitely have to touch on that, but yeah. So just to recap our five urban legends that we have debunked in this episode of implant maintenance is number one, the don't probe, you can probe. And there's science to back it up. Go check out the um, AAP uh, Perio classifications on implant health and maintenance and all the different categories. It is all right there in black and white for you. So definitely go check that out. Don't 360 degree floss. Toss the 360 floss. Throw your plastic scalers in the garbage. Yeah. <laughs> and have a, a conversation. You know, sometimes we already as the clinicians, we opt ourselves out because we just assume they're going to say no. But, you know, just can I speak with you? Let's have a talk. I've been learning about this and it has taught me A, B, C, and D. So bring that up to your doctor and, and I encourage you to, to schedule a meeting and have a discussion. And we have covered that implants are not like teeth. So please don't say that they are. It just sends, sends a shiver up my spine when, when dental professionals say, it's just like a tooth. <laughs> no, it's not. And we told you why. And that they are not bionic. They are susceptible to disease. So I hope that these five tips that we covered are practical and helpful, and you can bring them back into your operatories and into your practices uh, and share this knowledge with your patients, with your colleagues and be able to just, uh, you know, elevate that care that you provide. No, and thank you so much if you're listening again or if you're a new listener. We really appreciate you spending time with us. It's, it's a huge honour for both of us to have that, that you're giving up an hour of your time to spend with us. Um, as someone said, I feel like I got to have coffee with two other tooth nerds. So we appreciate that. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's so fun. I, like we are just so excited about sharing this with you guys. And we're so happy that our disruptor 
uh, tribe is growing. And um, so please hashtag us on social media when you listen, share with your colleagues about our podcast. We so appreciate the growth. Uh, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you haven't, please write us a review. We really appreciate it. And it just, we love reading them. So thank you again so much for taking the time, not only to listen, but then to do that as well. We love you guys. So keep disrupting and we will hopefully have another podcast for you in another two weeks. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.